Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Open your Bibles up to Genesis 31. If you are a guest with us uh, this morning, you're not yet a Christian, we want to welcome you here as well. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to read a large portion of the Bible, and then I'm going to talk a little bit, and I'm going to explain what we just read. And we do that for a couple of reasons. As Christians, we do that because um, we believe that God's word has power to change people's lives. And so that's why we do this ritual, this habit every single week of reading from God's word and then explaining what God's word has to say to us. We believe there's power to change lives in God's word. Uh, today, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna see quite a transformation taking place in the life of uh, Jacob. So if you would, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kingsmen, point out that what I have is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is this sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and what, and what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. God of Abraham, God of 
Isaac, God of Jacob, and our God, we have come to worship you. We've come to seek your face and to lift up your name. And God, we thank you for your word. You are the great mover. No one moves you, but you move all things. And Lord, would you move us today? Change us by your word, dear God, we pray. Shape us as a church, shape Crossway to be more like you, thinking and acting more like you. Transform us and give us new holy desires, we pray. Do it by the power of your word and through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Dan Harris is the co-anchor of ABC's Nightline. He's a lifelong agnostic. He had a public uh, on-air panic attack, which led him on a journey to make some uh, changes in his life. This is about 10 years ago or so. Eventually, he came to embrace a secular form of meditation that's based on neuroscience. No crystals, no robes. Neuroscience. He claims that it improved his life by making him 10% happier, and the same thing can happen to you. He doesn't claim that mindful meditation will transform you because in his estimation, nothing can transform you. But it can make some improvements to who you already are. That's his claim, improvements to who you already are. It's you, the same old you, but with more sleep. You but with less anxiety in your life and in your thoughts. It's you and all your relationships, but just better relationships. And, and, and I'm not bringing him up as a straw man to knock him down. That actually sounds pretty good to me, all right? The podcast of his self-improvement plan has been downloaded over 10 million times in just two years. Dan also helped create med- a meditation app for phones on which people have logged Already 50 million minutes since it's been launched for public consumption. Now, now this should tell us something. I find all that really telling, and I think we need to listen to what it's telling us. It's that this, it's this, that people are settling for minor improvements instead of life transformation. And that's very telling to me. And it's a mere 10% improvement at that. And people are glad and excited about that. It's not that the solution is wrong so much as that it's just thin. It's thin. It's cosmetics. It's Theraflu. You know what I'm saying? You know Theraflu? It takes care of the symptoms, but it doesn't bother to go treat the illness. That's what this is. And guys, I gotta, I gotta say something here. This is my fear for Christians. This is not a critique of Dan Harris. This is a critique of us in some ways. My fear for Christians, many of you that are in this room this morning as Christians, I'm afraid that many of us see God and our faith in God as something to just make us 10% happier. We're actually not that different. I'm afraid that we look at God because we only want the symptoms of our sin taken from us, but we don't really want our sin taken from us. Does this make sense? 
We tend to seek minor improvements from God Almighty, not life transformation. But today we're going to see in the life of Jacob that God has absolutely no interest whatsoever in merely improving your life and my life. God fully intends to transform us into people who trust him and obey him with our life. Here's what we're going to find in the passage that we just read this morning. A transformed life comes from a rescued life. That's the big idea today. A transformed life comes from a rescued life. Your life, my life, will be transformed to the degree that we understand that God has rescued us from never-ending bondage. God has rescued us from never-ending bondage. So there's a lot that's happened in the story to get us to this confrontation between Laban and Jacob that we didn't read this morning. So I'm going to just bring us up to speed real quick, just kind of narrate through it a little bit, all right? Here's what's happened at this point. Jacob wants to leave Laban's place as soon as he had his last son, Joseph. But Laban wants to keep Jacob around because he's getting rich off of his shepherding skills, which he realizes because God's blessing Jacob. By the way, didn't God say he was going to do that to Jacob? So God's keeping his promises. So people bless Jacob, and God God blesses Jacob. So here's what happens. Laban makes another deal with Jacob to detain him. He wants to keep him on the farm because he's profiting from this. Surprisingly, though, Jacob actually honors the deal that he makes, but Laban secretly goes behind his back and rigs the deal so that it's guaranteed that Jacob will stay poor and Laban will become richer. He rigs systemic oppression upon him. He doesn't tell him about it. Yet Jacob keeps his word. But yet another reversal happens. Have you guys realized this? this is Genesis is big on reversals, right? Another reversal happens in our story. God intervenes. God simultaneously makes Jacob prosper while plundering Laban's wealth. It's amazing. This, of course, makes Laban very angry, and his son's very angry at Jacob. And so God commands Jacob to flee, and his wives willingly agree to go with him. That's kind of important to the story. They willingly go. Let's go back a little bit. Genesis 31 4 through 6, and we'll hop down to verse 14. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flocks were, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Now you know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Drop down to verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered him, and they said, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? It's rhetorical. The answer is no. Are we not regarded by our father as foreigners? For he has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Call that spousal support. (laughs) That's great. 
It's pretty amazing. They recognize that God is at work in all of this, and they choose to obey God, right? Clearly. Even more amazing, this is the first time that these sisters have obeyed their husband instead of trying to use their husband for something. More amazing still, it's the first time these two sisters have agreed about anything. So there's some, there's some changes happening in this family, right? In the lives of these people. Meanwhile, what's going on is that Laban finds out that Jacob has secretly fled with all of his family, so he gathers an army of men and pursues them as fast as they can. The language that the narrator uses is this is an army militia that's going after them, okay? They're not just taking a little stroll to... He's not pursuing Jacob to give him hugs and kisses like he says he is. In that little speech that we read, Uh uh-uh. They're pitching tents. They're hotly pursuing they're overtaking, they're running them down. His gang is going with the express intent of intimidating Jacob, robbing him of everything that he has, and probably using violence if there is any resistance of any kind, and they're going to get a really great night's sleep that night. They're not going to have a problem with that. But once again, God intervenes on behalf of Jacob, and God rescues Jacob. So let's go back to the text, verse 29. Now Laban, is, he's giving the speech, and he's getting ready to end the speech. Laban says this, It is in my power to do you harm. It is in my power to, I could take you out where you stand, young man. It's in my power to do you harm, but the God, and this is another but God, But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So as the story progresses, we see how oppressive Laban really is, right? He's a slave master, much like Pharaoh will be later. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between Jacob's exodus and the Israelites' exodus. Jacob actually is Israel, right? Keep that in mind as we go along. Instead of blessing his nephew, he has only exploited him for profit for year after year, and he only thinks up new ways to enslave his nephew. Jacob's plan was to suck the life out of Jacob and his daughters, and he feels no remorse about that. And when his plan got foiled, Laban goes after him, and Laban plainly says he pursued Jacob to do him harm. Listen, guys, Laban has no conscience. This is the kind of person he is. He's evil. They're not just making a mistake. And the only reason that Laban has not slaughtered Jacob and his entire family, which will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, is because God, the God of Jacob, personally intervened. God, God of Jacob personally intersected in that situation and saved him. He rescued him from destruction and made a way of escape yet again. It's only because of God. So what are you and I to make of this story? Well, we're to see in Laban the seductive and the enslaving power of sin in each and every one of us. Guys, listen, sin is no small thing. It's no small thing to you. We think it's a little chihuahua that we can ignore. 
It's not. Sin is an evil monster that wants to have you. And you need to see it as such. It's not cute, and it's not playing around in your life. Amen? It's a monster. Much like Laban did to Jacob, sin makes promises to us and has absolutely no intention of fulfilling or keeping. Sin claims that we can name our wages. Right? That's, by the way, that's one of like Laban's favorite phrases. Have you noticed that? Just name your wage. Name your price. What do you want? Pick her out. What do you want? Just serve me. You can have whatever you want. Sin tells us, serve me. You can take whatever you like for as long as you like. You can stay with me as long as you want. And then you're free to go. That's what's, doesn't that whisper in your ear and your heart? That's sin talking. But in the end, it traps us in never-ending bondage. It's on an installment plan. Remember what Jacob said to slave master Laban? Verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. He calls him out for what he really is. Jacob finally realizes that he was never free living in Uncle Laban's house. Though he felt free. Though he kind of did get some of the things that he wanted. He was never free. It was a total illusion that he was living in for those 20 years. In the end, Laban was going to leave him with nothing. That was the game plan. The bottom line is that no matter how, how far we run, sin will find us. No matter how smart we think we are, sin will outsmart us. No matter how strong-willed we are, sin will seduce us and keep us under its power. And the only thing, the only thing, brothers and sisters, in this world, strong enough to set us free from the empowering, slaving power of sin, is the mighty God of Jacob. There is no other hope for you and me. You need to know that today. Let me ask you this question because I love you. What does this look like for you? What's that look like for you? You have to think about that. Personally, not someone out there somewhere, you. What slavery has God rescued you from that would have otherwise destroyed your life? What is that for you? Can you look at your life and point to something? How would you complete that sentence? If God had not been on my side, surely blank would have sent me away empty-handed. How would you answer that question, family? See, for some of us, we fill in the blank with drugs. If it had not been God, if God had not been on my side, drugs would have sent me away empty-handed. It would have destroyed my life. How do you end up filling that blank? For some of us, it was pornography. For some of us, it's workaholism in my career. For some of us, it's bitterness. I'm just going to not forgive that person. I refuse to forgive that person. It's destroying my life. For some of us, it's rage. For some of us, it's just selfishness. I love me some me. 
What enslaving sin can you honestly, if you were honest, you could honestly point to and say, if God had not rescued me, I'm sure this would have destroyed my life and sent me away empty-handed. Praise God, he's rescued me from that and continues to rescue me from that every day of my life. You see, when you get that, when you understand that you've been rescued from never-ending bondage, there was not an end in sight, that will transform your life. That will change what you love. Amen? Because that's the gospel. Here's how the New Testament explains God's great rescue for us in Romans 6, verse 16 and following. It says, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey? Either slaves of sin, which leads to death, or slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. To what? to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. And to someone who is really born again, that sounds like good news, not bad news. See, when you and I realize that God has rescued us from a monstrous slave master more evil and more powerful than a hundred Laban's, that will transform us. That will transform you and I. When we understand that we've been set free from our slavery only because God intervened and not because of our strength and not because of our willpower and determination and not because of our wisdom or our cleverness, but only because the God of Jacob became the ultimate son of Jacob, on our behalf will our life become radically reordered. We will love things that we have never loved before. We're going to hate things we used to love. We will no longer live for ourselves. We will no longer die for ourselves, but for Jesus Christ who lived and died to wrestle us from the grip of Satan and sin. And that's who we'll live and die for. And by the way, that's the second way that God's salvation actually transforms us. See, God rescued us for a life of righteousness. God rescued us for a life of righteous living. In an effort to gain control over Jacob, Laban accuses Jacob of dishonesty and thievery and then accuses him of lying about all of that. But after Laban can find no evidence, Jacob speaks up and he defends his integrity publicly. We'll go back to the text, verse 38 through 42. And 42 really is, the, that's the key verse of this entire scene. These 20, this is Jacob speaking, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. You know what's cool about that? You know what Rachel's name means? It's ewes. It means little lamb. It's the same word for Rachel. Your Rachel's, this one right here, Laban, and all your little Rachels, they never once had a miscarriage under my care and my supervision. 
and I've not eaten the rams of your flock. He's saying, look, I didn't skim off the top like most shepherds do because you pay us a really cruddy salary and you're not out in the field anyway. Well, I didn't do that to you. What was torn up by the wild beast, I did not bring it to you. You didn't even know it happened because I bore the loss myself. I took it out of my flock. I got poorer so you could get richer. From my hand you required it, though, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and by cold by the night, and sleep fled from my eyes. He's saying, look, I endured harsh working conditions, and I still showed up, and I still did my job. And you're better for me showing up and doing my job with excellence. That's the kind of man I am. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for two of your daughters and six more years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. He's like, I kept my word even though you never kept your word to me. I kept my end of the bargain because I'm a man of integrity. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hand and rebuked you last night. What happened to Jacob in the last 20 years, guys? You asking that question yet? He's been transformed. Like, we barely recognize the dude, right? Is this the same guy? I don't recognize him. I mean, when we first met Jacob, remember, he was a cheat. He was a liar. And he was fine with all of that, right? He had no conscience. He slept well at night, ripping his own family members off. He was running away from the consequences of his sin. He's just slip-sliding his way away from all that stuff. Remember that? I mean, he had even met God, but he didn't trust God after meeting God. He didn't obey God. He trusted in himself, right? But now, look, he's a man. He faithfully keeps his word even when it's difficult. He's learned to accept loss without seeking revenge on someone. In fact, he, he actually returns good for evil. Jacob's learned to work with integrity instead of taking what doesn't belong to him. And now he works for the benefit of others instead of working to exploit others. And now Jacob trusts God. He even obeys God when he commands him to do something and to top it all off. Instead of taking credit for himself, instead of being self-reliant and saying, "Look, yeah, look what I did. Jacob verbally and publicly gives glory to God for all the blessings he's received and blessings that he's a conduit of. This is pretty remarkable, guys. Wouldn't you agree? You remember when Rachel, Rachel hid the household gods? Remember that part? You know what the point of that whole scene is? Because if you read it, it goes very well from Laban's speech to Jacob's speech. And I'm wondering about that. Why this break? What's the point of that? Why is that inserted there? You know what the point of that whole scene is? It's to prove beyond question in our mind that Jacob is who he says he is. He really is who he says he is right now, today. Jacob really is innocent of stealing, like he claims he is. He didn't steal those things. Rachel did, but he's being accused falsely of it. He didn't steal it. Jacob really is innocent of lying, 
like he claims he is. Jacob really is telling the truth. He's not lying. Rachel's the one who's lying. She's the one who didn't tell him about it. And she didn't tell him about that. That's how we know he's, he is who he says he is, as we've seen him today. Listen, liars and cheats don't make death vows when they're caught, right? What do they do? They blame someone else when they're caught, or they keep lying. But they don't act like this. Here's my point. These are not cosmetic changes to Jacob. Okay? This is not the same old Jacob with just a new coat of paint on him. This is not the same old Jacob, but he's just 10% happier. He's just 10% better. These are not, in other words, mere moral improvements. Are you tracking with me? This is what transformation looks like. It is possible, and it happens. And this is what it looks like, brothers and sisters. He has new, holy, entirely different righteous desires. He has new, different, holy, righteous behaviors. Jacob is no longer living for himself, but he's living in a way that brings glory and attention to the God of his father, Abraham. What caused this wonderful transformation in Jacob? You've got to ask that question. God's grace in his life did that to him. It did that to him. God has transformed Jacob by protecting him and providing him, basically saving him for 20 years. Saving him and then saving him and then saving him for 20 years. And Jacob is responding properly to God's grace in his life by obeying God in righteous living. Jacob's sanctification is evidence of God's salvation. This is what grace does. Here's the point. God not only rescues us from something as great as that is, God rescues us for something. And you need to know that. God has rescued you for something, not just from something. He has rescued us so that we might now live righteously. And that's a good thing. Because that's true freedom. That's how the Bible spells freedom. Righteous living. Isn't that neat? Trusting God and then obeying God is true freedom. It's the freedom you always wanted, and I've always wanted. That is what Jacob is experiencing right now, freedom as he trusts and obeys the Lord that saves. And that is what God wants you and I to experience as well. Our modern American culture defines freedom exclusively in terms of what's called negative freedom. Freedom from any kind of restriction. Freedom from any kind of laws. Freedom from any kind of binding commitments to other people. Freedom in American culture is described as the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, as long as I want, and don't tell me otherwise. Don't tread on me, right? Don't tell me what to do. I'm free from all of that. 
And there's several problems with that notion of freedom when you just pick at it a little bit. But never mind the fact that's exactly the kind of freedom that Jacob was fully living out and it just drove him deeper into slavery and bondage. But in the Bible, the Bible mainly talks about freedom in terms of what's called positive freedom. Meaning, a person is free when they have the ability to pursue something good that they were not able to pursue before because they were in chains. See, now they're free to pursue the thing they always wanted, but they didn't have the ability to. That's how the Bible talks about it. Our culture tells us freedom is being able to do whatever we want. The Bible, the gospel of Jesus tells us that freedom is being able to finally do whatever God wants. Amen. Gospel freedom is not the absence of any kind of commitments. It's not the absence of any kind of boundaries in your life and my life. No. It's finally been able to live within the right boundaries and the right commitments, the kind that gives us true freedom and we flourish under because of the one who has given those to us. A different master. This is how the New Testament actually puts it. Romans 6, verse 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. When you were in that slave master, sin, and do whatever you want, you thought you were free on the farm, but you weren't. And so you're free from righteousness. Any kind of commandments of God, oh, that's burdensome. Oh, that's heavy. Right? You didn't have to do what was right in God's eyes. It was a burden. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things that you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. The end of that kind of freedom is death. That's what he's saying. But now that you've been set free from sin and you become a slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to, what's that word? Sanctification. And in its, in, in its end is eternal life wow now that you've been rescued from god by god from sin that leads to sanctification it leads to a new way of living life a new way of ordering our life which has at its goal eternal life we're walking towards a different goal line now the end zone has been moved for us God did not merely rescue us so that one day in the future we can get a ticket punch to get into heaven, but for now just keep living the same old ways that kept you enslaved. No. You're cheating yourself if you think that's what the gospel is. No, God rescued us through Jesus so that we could live God's way now, which brings life, so that we could live within his commandments, his commitments, his wisdom, and his boundaries. Why? So that in accepting Christ's life, in place of our own, Christ's very spirit can begin to live through us. And we might be able to experience the eternal life that has been promised to us. So that you get to actually encounter and experience that life that's been promised to you ahead of schedule. Right now, on earth. That's the kind of disciples that we're trying to develop. 
people have truly encountered the gospel, right, and are living for his glory, we're not about making minor improvements here at Crossway, guys, amen? We're about this. God has rescued us through Christ so that we would now be able to pursue what we weren't able to pursue before. That we'd be able to taste what we always wanted to taste but we couldn't taste before. This is good news. If God has saved you, he calls you to pursue him in righteousness. See, before that, we're like, oh, your burdens are heavy. No, Jesus says, now you come to me. I, there's burdens, but my burdens are light, right? My load is easy. Why? Because your heart's been changed about it. You see it as freedom. You saw that life as slavery. Isn't Jesus wonderful? If God has called, if he saved you, he's called you to pursue him and to pursue him today, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Today, before the sun goes down, pursue him in righteousness. He calls you to surrender, not one area, not two areas, not three areas, but all areas and all spheres of your life to him. Surrender them to him. Give them up to him so that you might experience true freedom. His transformation. Hear his voice, family, today. Heed his calling. Christ will give you the power to pursue him and obey him. He loves you. I love you too. Let's pray. Oh, God of Jacob, we love you. We praise your holy name. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to be presently at work in every heart in this room, mine included. And that we would not leave this place except changed. God, I ask you to change our lives. Lord, I beg you, do what only you can do. And I beg you not because I think you're not going to do it because I know there is no other way this can happen without you acting. Change our lives. This is not just hear us doing some religious dance every week. We want you to change us. We want to taste and experience true freedom that we can walk in your ways. So move us, great mover. Closer to you. And do your deep work in deep places, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, who is resurrected, amen.